So we're going to be in Daniel chapter 11 today, Lord willing. Uh, we're not going to finish it. Uh, I would finish you if I finished it. I have, uh, I, I, when I started, when I started preparing for this, I, uh, I pulled out my old notes and I took three Sundays to do this chapter the last time, which was back in 2006. And um, I can see why. I have 30 plus pages of notes on it and I've got seven in front of me today. That's with cutting out a whole bunch of scriptures and I don't know how this is going to work. Father, I lift up to you, Melissa. Kesterson today, the loss of her husband this week. I pray, Father, as she adjusts to life without Rick. I pray for so many in our country that have said goodbye to loved ones this year, and I just ask, Lord, that you would bless them with your presence and with the assurance, Lord, that there is a future for them in heaven if they'll receive your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this time together, and I thank you for this passage, and I just ask, Father, that you'd help me to be as brief as possible and yet cover the material. I ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 11. Last week we got a glimpse of the spiritual war behind the scenes. Uh, we don't normally get that, at least not too often in the scriptures, uh, but, but more than just a glimpse, we see... As we read the book of Daniel, the main point, of course, of course, is of, of the main message of Daniel is that God rules in the kingdom of men. Now, these events that we're going to talk about or I'm going to attempt to talk about today uh, are all future. They were written by Daniel uh, in 458 B.C. And many of these things won't happen until uh, nearing, nearing the time of Christ. This covers events from Cyrus the Great, who was the king of Persia who conquered Babylon and came in and he allowed the Jews to first return all the way up until the rise of the Roman Empire. So we're going to be looking at 500 years of uh, Mediterranean, anyway, world history. Uh, certainly that area of the world that the Bible is focused in is what we'll be looking at today. Uh, and I know if you're like I am about history, I think, oh, just shoot me now. Let's not talk about history. You know, uh, and truthfully, I, I had a history teacher that would get up and read the book to me in high school. It was the worst experience of my life. And in, in college, I, I honestly don't even know if I took a history course. I do have a college history book, but I see it on my shelf. That's the only thing I remember about college history. Uh, so obviously, I wasn't a fan of history then. It was actually only after I became a Christian that history became his story and it began to get more interesting to me. And the main, the main message of uh, our passage today, at least as I read it and as it comes through to me, is that God, I, I, I don't know how to say this, I, I don't know whether I want to say God is con in control of the infinite detail of our lives or that God is clearly aware of the infinite details of our lives. And perhaps both is true. I, I certainly believe in the life of a believer, God is in control. I, I don't really want to blame God for some of the foolish things that these, these men do. Now, uh, chapter 11 has three major sections. Uh, and what we're going to look at today is really the first two, if we get that far. Uh, 
Verses 1 through 20 of this first chapter cover the four major rulers of the Persian Empire after Cyrus the Great. So we're talking about five kings, if you will. Uh, then we're going to look at the rise of this, uh, the rise and fall of Alexander the Great, uh, the Greek uh, general who conquered the world in the shortest known period of time. And then we're going to see how the Greek Empire was divided in four sections. As we've gone over this a couple of times, it should be fairly comfortable for many of you under his four generals. And then if we make it to verse 21 through 35, and we may not, uh, as it's already quarter of, if I'm seeing that hand correctly, uh, is that even possible? Do I have a clock in front of me somewhere here? No, I don't. Oh, wait, I got one right there. Oh, my goodness, it's 10 of already. That's right. I put a clock there so I could see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to make it that far, I can tell you that. So we'll begin with verse 1, Daniel chapter 11 and verse 1. Now, you recall Gabriel in chapter 10 is talking. He's talking to Daniel, and he's about to reveal the and give him understanding, really clarity on many of the previous visions that Daniel has had. Uh, this really isn't a new vision. It's almost like a, a clarification of an old vision. So when he says, also I, that's the angel. I'm saying it's Gabriel. He's not named in this passage. I'm assuming it's Gabriel because it was Gabriel the last two times. But that's an assumption on my part. Also I, in the first year of Darius the Mede. Now Darius was a co-regent under Cyrus, who Cyrus put in charge to run Babylon. So a lot of people just say they don't know who this Darius is. Darius didn't exist. Darius didn't exist in history. Well, in, in the last century, they've actually discovered uh, tablets that do list his name and that he was a co-regent of Babylon under Cyrus the Great. Also, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, I even stood to confirm and to strengthen him. Now, Gabriel is talking and he's telling what he did. So remember, he was trying to answer a prayer and it took him 21 days to get there. And the reason he was held up was he was there to protect, to stand with and confirm, establish the king uh, who is at currently under satanic attack. And the two of them, uh, Gabriel and Michael, managed to, to whoop whatever the bad angel was. And I don't know if he even had a name. I'm sure he must. But uh, uh, they, they managed to whip him and, and Gabriel was able to get away. You know, um, verse 2, and I think I, this is where my show starts. Except nothing happened when I went clicky, clicky. Just click, clicky, clicky again. My, it's funny, my mouse, I brought in a mouse pad, and my mouse doesn't like sleeping on its pad. It's just, it's like some... It's like some dogs that I've had. They just don't cooperate no matter what you do. You know, this mouse... It's Linda's fault. She threw it on the floor. Um, and now I, this is Gabriel speaking, I will show thee the truth. Behold, the, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength through his riches shall he stir up all against the realm of Greca. Three Persian kings. Hey, it worked that time. Good. Three Persian kings. Cambyses. Now we had, of course, Cyrus the Great was first. Cambyses, Smyrdas, Darius, Hataspes. And Xerxes. Xerxes is the one of most interest to us. Uh, Xerxes uh, 
was was great at taxing, and he used his wealth and his power to raise one of the largest armies of the world. And I find the guy very interesting. If any of you saw the movie The Three Hundred, that's about uh, the Spartacus, the Spartans, the the Greeks, if you will, the Northern Greeks, attempting to stop the invasion by this guy Xerxes. His father actually attacked or attempted to attack Greece, and he failed miserably. And now Xerxes is going to go back. And it, there's a big debate about how many people were in his army. Modern historians say that these numbers are greatly exaggerated. But the, the estimates, he himself, Xerxes himself, said he had 1.2 million men in his army. Uh, some historians back in that age said he had 2 million men. That may include the wives and children all going along with them, uh, they had 800,000, I'm sorry, 80,000 cavalry and 20,000 chariots and slaves along with the 1.7 uh, million uh, infantry. Now, modern historians say that's, that's probably exaggerated by tenfold, that he only had 150,000. But actually, 150,000 in that day was a pretty small army. So it's possible he had the largest army that has ever been assembled in the ancient world. Now, you recall in our study of Revelation, there, there, there is prophesied an army of 100 million to rise up out of the east. So it's not an un undoable number. In, in the, uh, with World War II, uh, America fielded an army of 10 million, uh, which was pretty remarkable when you think about it. Uh, so this thing uh, comes along to the Battle of uh, Thermopylae as he marches, as Xerxes marches on what will become the Greek Empire. Uh, and the Battle of Thermopylae, he crossed at that very narrow strait that you see there right in the middle. Uh, at, at the closest point, it's one mile wide, and in order to get across it, he, he built, he took 600 of his old warships, and he created one of the earliest pontoon bridges, and they created a path across. That's an artist's rendition, of course. It's not a photograph. Uh, and uh, he, uh, he, he attempted to cross the Hellensport. That, that's actually the little channel between the Aegean Sea and the Black Sea. Uh, I believe the Black Sea is now part of Russian territory, and this would be their way out to the open water to go through this pass through here, this narrow pass at, at what they call Hellensport. And it took seven days and nights for his army to cross on that thing. Uh, now... He goes, can I go back? Let's see if I can go back without creating too much of a stir. Well, yeah, the wheel doesn't work so good. He crosses at that very narrow strip, and then he goes up that narrow strip and over, and then he's got to march all over. So he's crossed all of, of what is modern-day Turkey, and then he crosses the Hellesport, and then he marches. We're talking about a million or more people. He marches them all the way up and all the way over and all the way down to that little narrow gate where uh, Leonidas meets him, uh, picks the spot where the army has to go through, the narrowest point they could find, and there they stop the army. Uh, this happens three times in history. It's as, it's as if nobody's learned anything. Everybody that tried this had failed, by the way. It just hadn't happened. Uh, and what happened was uh, Xerxes... A hundred years before Alexander the Great created such a mess, this was such a bitter battle that so many people died. No one, it isn't that, <coughs> excuse me, it isn't like a modern battle. 
where both sides claim victory. In this case, both sides really claimed defeat. Everybody lost. There were so many thousands and thousands of people killed that it created a big, bitter uh, bitterness between these two countries that has actually lasted till our day to day. Uh, certainly, until Alexander comes along a hundred years later. So when Alexander the Great comes along, his father hasn't even been born at the time of this invasion. But uh, when Alexander the Great comes along at the age of 19, he's carrying a real chip on his soldier, on his shoulder. I'm sorry. So this mighty king that shall stand up and will rule with great dominion is Alexander the Great. Alexander rose to power at the age of 19. His hatred of the Persians and violence towards uh, the, the, this invasion carried over, and he's just furious. He conquered the world in the shortest known time ever. He's the winged leopard of Daniel chapter 7 and verse 6. He ruled the world by the time he was 29, and by the time he was 33, he was depressed because he'd run out of countries that he could conquer. He was an alcoholic, and one day he was out wandering around Babylon, having conquered the then-known world. He was depressed because there was nobody else he could kill. He killed everybody he wanted to, and uh, he was drunk, and he was walking around in the rain, and he caught pneumonia, and he died at the age of 33. <coughs> now, the next verse says... Now, a clicky, didn't clicky. The next verse says, and when he shall stand up, literally it says, as he was standing or <coughs> while he's rising to power, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven and not to his posterity nor according to his dominion which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others besides those. So while he was rising to the greatest power of any world leader, these, these are anti-God world empires. These are no friends of the Jews now. Uh, this prophecy was written in 539 B.C. and it was filled in 323 B.C. So he's laying on his bed dying and he's made no preparation for his future. He, he's too young to even think about a will and people are saying, what shall we do? And what about the kingdom? What about the empire? What about the Greek empire? And he said, let it be to the strong. Well, that meant if you were strong enough, you can have it, I guess. I don't know. And people started killing one another in record numbers. His, uh, it says, shall be divided to the four winds of heaven, as it turned out. It ended up in the hands of his four major generals. They were certainly the strongest ones because they had whole divisions, whole armies behind them. So it's, it's certainly they ended up the strong, but there was a lot of death in between while they worked out who was going to be in charge. And when you talk about the four winds of heaven, you talk about north, east, south, and west. And these generals divided up the, the Greek empire, north, east, excuse me, north, east, south, and west. Much of what they did has influenced our world today. So this, this although it's history, it's actually effective for us today as well not to his posterity. Now, he had two sons. He had an illegitimate son uh, whose name was Hercules, and he had a legitimate son whose name was Alexander, and he had a brother, Philip. It would be rightful that the uh, empire would have gone to one of them, but it turned out before the generals took office, they all happened to have been murdered. I'm sure no one knows who did it. 
Uh, and it says not according to his dominion, uh, not to his posterity. It won't go to his kids or his family, nor to his dominion, nor, nor as a level of his dominion. It won't be as strong an empire. And it certainly wasn't. These generals were nothing like Alexander. They were actually selfish, mean-spirited, evil people that spent their lives grasping things for themselves. And consequently, uh, Alexander had this vision of a world at peace. These guys, they just wanted money and power. And all they did, all they did from now on for the next 200 years is kill one another. For his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others beside. And I've shown you this particular map before. Uh, the four generals are Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. And really, the two that we're interested in are the one that's the east, the kings of the east, Seleucus, and Ptolemy, the king, uh, the, the general that took over Egypt. Uh, uh, Lysimachus and Cassander do not play into this prophecy much longer. Uh, now, the, there we go. And the king of the south shall be strong, and one of his princes, and he shall be strong above him, and shall have dominion. His dominion shall be great. And as it turns out, throughout the next 200 years, 150 to 175 years, the, the southern king, the Egyptian kings, will have more power than the eastern king. And, and this, this Seleucus and his, his reign, and this will create a problem. This, this imbalance of power will create a problem. I, I, I put this up yesterday. It's hard to see. We're really only interested in the top five when you come down from the top. Seleucius is at the top, you can see. That's the general. And then that's his son, Antiochus I, and then Antiochus II, and then Seleucius II. And then you look over to the right and you see Antiochus III. That's Antiochus the Great. And then you come down one more notch. That's Antiochus IV. Epiphanes. He called himself Epiphanes. He considered himself, to give you an idea of the ego of this man, he considered himself to be a manifestation of God on the earth. So Antiochus IV Epiphanes is the one that will become that little horn of Daniel chapter 7. He's the one that will prefigure the Antichrist. But I wanted you to see that there's a number of of iterations of these leaders in between. There's five generations there. Uh, to Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes to his left is his brother, whose name is Seleucus the third, Kernos, and uh, that's his brother whom he kills. No, I'm sorry, I'm reading on the wrong line. I'm on Antiochus the Greek. His brother is Seleucus the fourth Philippator, whom whom he he kills, and then under him is Demetrius the first Sotiator, which is Antiochus's nephew, uh, his brother's son, whom he has imprisoned in Rome. And then he seeks out to attack his sister. Um, well, these guys are something. After this, he shall turn his face into the aisles. Wow, I've gone way too far here. So now I'm going to skip the next basically 11 verses. These generals, now kings or whatever they call themselves, uh, and their children, their generations, for five generations, will battle one another for the next five generations. The southern king will be consistently stronger. And there, there is such intrigue in this that I would like to share it with you, but I just don't want to take your time. Uh, it's just tedious. Uh, there's a couple of ladies involved. One of them is Cleopatra. Uh, there's a couple of promises in marriage. And if you want to read this and compare it to history, what happens is... 
if if a skeptic reads this and looks at history, they they determine, and what scholars have determined is that this was written after the event because the accuracy, the accuracy of these prophecies is so, it's in such detail and so so accurate that nobody, this is a skeptic view, nobody could even come up with the idea that this would happen, you see. And so consequently, they put it at a later date. Where they get in trouble is they forget that the Old Testament was translated into Greek 300 years before these events. And these events were written down in there. So we have proof that this prophecy preceded these events. Now Antiochus III pulls another attempt to go over and attack Egypt. It was the fourth campaign he had. And uh, he was such a terrible victory. He, uh, he ends up br brutally uh, embarrassed and turns his face to the Isles, which is a mistake. So because he couldn't do anything against his fellow compatriots in Egypt, he turns his, to the islands and he tries to attack Greece and Rome. And what he ends up doing is actually making some people very angry. And he goes to war his third time <clears throat> and nearly gets himself killed. Um, it says he shall take away many. And as we think of Memorial Day, I, I don't know, I, I, as, as an enlisted, a former enlisted person, I, I think how many lives have been lost by the, 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 the rantings and the foolishness of very bad generals and kings. And I think to myself, shall take away many. But a prince for his own behalf shall cause the reproach offered by him to cease. He goes over there and he attacks Cyprus and Rome whoops him good. And without his own reproach, he shall cease it to turn upon him. Anyway, he, he got the worst of it. And in frustration, I'm at verse, in frustration, he returns home to what we call today Syria. And he's embarrassed and he's lost most of his army again. Uh, he lost most of it down in Egypt, the third attack down there. And now he try, uh, tried to attack, it says Chittim in the, uh, in the King James Version, and that's Kittim in the Hebrew, which is the island of Cyprus, and it's really talking about Rome. Rome isn't a nation yet, just as when his ancestors attacked Greece. Greece wasn't a nation. But when this, this million-man army marched on Greece 100 years before this, it created the nation-state of Greece. They pulled their forces together in order to stand back. They were a whole bunch of separate states. And after, after uh, Xerxes attacked it, they started thinking, man, we, we need to do something. And this same thing happened with Rome. When these guys started attacking these islands, Rome started pulling itself together to defend against these crazy people. And as a result, these nations were formed. I often think how it was that Hitler tried to annihilate the Jewish nation. And in his effort, he created the Jewish nation. And I think history is just repeating itself. So on his way back, it says, then shall he turn his face toward the fort of his own land. As soon as he got back, onto what we call Asia Minor, Western Turkey, he found a, uh, a fort, he found a, a uh, religious, uh, what's my word here? A temple, that's the word I'm looking for. Elam was in the upper left-hand corner of what we now call Turkey, that's where he got back. When he got back, he immediately goes in and plunders a temple just, just to prove himself strong. Far in Western, what we, we would call Syria or Turkey today. Uh, it's his own country. He goes back and he starts attacking people in his own country.
Anyway, it says he shall not be found. He just disappears. They don't know if he was murdered, if he dropped dead, if God killed him. They don't know what happened. He just he went to plunder that temple and he fell down dead. Then she'll stand up in his estate. That's his son. Uh, no. Am I right? I'm not sure. I think this is his son. Then she'll stand up in his state, a raiser of taxes, in the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. And, and they actually think that Antiochus IV had something to do with that. And now comes what we call the little horn, what was actually the angel called the little horn. In his estate shall stand up a vile person, to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. And really, that should be translated treacherous. Treacherous. See, how do you say that? You come in by tre treachery. Treachery. Thank you. I knew there was, there, was a, there was a way to make that sound right. You know, thank you. Come in by treachery. Flatteries. He didn't flatter people. He just killed them, you know. Uh, the, the angel says he will rise to his throne through trickery, treachery. Uh, and you'll notice in the next verse, if I can get my mouse to work here, and with the arms of a flood shall they be overflowing. He just comes in and he starts killing everybody. He kills his brother. He has his uh, nephew locked up. He gets, uh, he gets enough control to where he's in control. He's telling people, he's telling people that he's going to try to uh, just fill in until his, his brother, uh, I guess that's his, yeah, his brother shows up because this guy is the one that disappeared, you know. Uh, and, uh, he, he actually, we think he actually had his own brother killed. Um, and after the league made with him, he shall work deceitfully, for he shall come up and shall become strong with the small people. He shall enter peaceably, even among the fattest places of the province. He shall do that which his fathers have not done, nor his father's fathers. He shall scatter among them the prey and spoil and riches, yea. He shall forecast his devices, and that means using trickery against the strongholds, even for a time. See, Antiochus IV, that's the one, Epiphanes, that we link to the Antichrist. He comes to power by saying he's reigning in his brother's son's place. But what he actually had was his brother's son arrested and locked up in Rome. Uh, and he had his brother murdered. And now he says he just wants to keep the kingdom together. So that's why he's stepping in to rule, even though no one asked him to. You know, now here's a guy. This is a true definition of a sociopath. His dad dies plundering a temple in his own country, right? Antiochus kills his brother enslaves his nephew in Rome and goes to war against his sister, blames it all on God. Along the way, he has an assassin, Heliodorus, who did the dirty work for him. He has his assassin killed. You know, he's cleaning up loose ends. You know, you, you think what's going on in Washington is bad. I mean, these guys, they're like the mafia. Uh, these guys are running these countries for 400 years. Can you imagine being part of that? And he shall stir up his power and his courage against the kings of the south with a great army. Now remember, this is we're in Syria, we're in Asia Minor, and they're, they're going down into Egypt to invade. And Egypt whoops them and beats them all the way back to Syria four times. Now if you think about it, there's only one way to get from Egypt to Syria, and that's to go through Israel. So little tiny Israel... For, the next, for that 200 years has these armies marching through one way and the other. And so he goes down there. Antiochus IV goes down there four different times to conquer or to attempt to conquer uh, Egypt. He has some luck. He has some family members installed in leadership. He does okay for a while. Uh, 
even put somebody, let me get to the next verse. He'll actually get somebody in Egypt sitting at the table with the king. Yea, that feed of the portion of his meat shall destroy him, and his army shall overflow, and many shall fall down slain. There's all those soldiers again dying. And both these kings, kings of the north and kings of the south, hearts shall be to do mischief, and they shall speak lies at one table. Well, that sounds like Washington. But it shall not prosper, for yet shall the end be at a time. Then shall he return to his land with great riches, and his heart shall be against the holy covenant, and he shall do exploits and return to his own land. When he comes back the third time from his third, this is Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes. When he returns from his third battle in Egypt, where he's highly successful, he plunders the temple and he destroys it. Then he decides he's going to go back down again. He's going to do a fourth invasion. At the time appointed, he shall return. This is fourth invasion of Egypt. Of course, every time, remember, he's tromping through Israel. At that time appointed, he shall return and come toward the south, but it shall not be as the former or as the latter. For ships of Chittim shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the holy covenant. So shall he do, even he shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. Now, he goes down for the fourth time. And the, God, the kings of Egypt are getting a little tired of this guy coming down and plundering their country. So they call, by now Rome is a world power, and they call on Rome to protect them. So Antiochus is down there with his army, and instead of running into the Egyptian army, he runs into the Roman legions. And there's a, a uh, what do you call it, an ambassador there by the name of Papilius, a Roman who when, when Antiochus presents himself at the gate, Papilius has one of his servants take his sword out and draw a circle around him. And Papilius says, before you step out of that circle, you tell me what you're going to do. Decide right then and there, are you going to withdraw your army or are you going to die? Take your pick. Now, Antiochus was frightened and he was embarrassed and he turned and he left Egypt for the last time. Now remember, he goes home with his army. At least they're alive this time. He goes home with his army, but on the way he has to go through Jerusalem. Now here's a psychopath that has now been embarrassed by a world power. This is not a pretty guy. And you can just imagine that somebody's going to pay dearly when you embarrass a psychopath. You want to be careful about that. Angry and seeking revenge, Antiochus takes out his revenge on Israel and, of course, the Jewish temple. And you know who lives along the road back. You know, when things go wrong in our lives, we all have a choice. We can learn from our mistakes and allow God to correct us. Or we can blame God and blame others and take it out on other people. Well, you know what Antiochus is going to do. He's going to take it on, on other people. And arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and shall make the place of the abomination, and make it that that. Now, he already hated Jews. He hated them. He's destroyed their temple before. They've rebuilt it. This is his sixth year returning from Jerusalem. and his last campaign, he destroyed uh, the temple. Now it's two years later, and he's acting out of a rage that's beyond himself. It's satanic in its error. He murders the high priest. He replaces the priesthood with his own people, with his own priest. With his intense hatred of God, he actually takes a sow into the, into the Holy of Holies and, altered, and offers it. He sacrifices a sow, and then he sets up a, a statue of one of his gods in the, in the temple of the Jews, and that's the abomination that make it desolate. That, that Daniel predicted that early in his career. 
uh, 70 years ago. Daniel predicted that this was happening. This is now what, 350 years later, it's actually happening. Uh, so this is called the abomination of desolation or the abomination that maketh desolate. One day Antichrist will do this very same thing. One day Antichrist is going to be embarrassed like this guy was embarrassed. I don't know what's going to embarrass him. It might be the Jews escaping. It might be the church getting raptured out. It might be getting defeated in one of his battles. We don't know what's going to embarrass him, but something's going to embarrass him. And he's going to turn with a vengeance against Israel, just like Antiochus did. Uh, let's see if I can go one more. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall be corrupt, shall he corrupt by flatteries. So he's going to get Jews of Jerusalem on his side, and he's going to corrupt them by telling them lies. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploit. Now that's the Maccabean revolution. These guys that knew God rose up, a family of priests rose up and literally threw his control off. There was a revolution. Uh, they purged the country of his, his foolishness and they uh, cleansed their temple. And in the process of cleansing their temple, they had this whole little event that has the candle that didn't run out of oil and that's what they celebrate. But they're celebrating the cleansing of the temple after the Maccabeans family, Judas Maccabeus and his family throughout these, uh, do we call them Greeks? I don't even know what we call them at this time. As for Antiochus, there was no level of depravity or insult that was enough for him to afflict upon the helpless Jews. There, there's no limit to the evil of Satan. Then there's this verse, which is where I'm stopping, and I bet you're glad about that. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many. Now, there's this, this little transition here for next week, which I was hoping to get to. They that understand among the people shall instruct many. There are Jews that will understand, that will teach many. All right. They that understand among the people, the Jews, shall instruct many. Yet, now look at this. They will fall by the sword. They'll fall by flame. They'll fall by captivity and they'll fall by spoil many days. You see there's a transition going on here. It's like from the Maccabean revolution when Antiochus Epiphanes was kicked out of Jerusalem. From that time forward, it's like they're putting in this little parentheses here. And, and this is going to be happening now for a while, for many days. Now when they shall fall, they shall be hoping with a little help. Now, I don't really know what that phrase means, but it sounds like they ain't going to get much help. You know, they're going to get a little help, but not a lot. And, but many shall cleave to them with flatteries. Now, I get the impression when I read this that there's a gap of time here, and we're now going to transition from Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. We're going to transition from there to the Antichrist, which is yet future for us, and that's what comes next week. So I get the impression there's a gap of time there, and we're looking at 2,000, a couple of hundred, 2,200 years. This is Israel's future. The fall by the sword, by the flame, by captivity, and spoil for many days. For Antiochus, it's over. Antiochus has been in hell now for 2,182 years. It may seem longer than that to him. But you can bet that he's still blaming someone else for his problems. You can be sure of that. Don't fall into that trap. 
Accept responsibility for your own behavior. And when God goes to correct you, accept the correction. I bet he's still mad at God for his parents and for his families and friends. I bet he's blaming his brother and his father and his nephew and his sister. We all have a choice when things go wrong. We can trust God with our problems and grow, or we can blame God for our problems and destroy ourselves and others. We know what Antiochus's choice is, but the question is, what will our choice be? If you're going to learn anything from history, learn this. Trust God. Look for his hand in everything that's going on. The detail of this prophecy is staggering. You can, you can literally write this prophecy on one side of a sheet of paper and write history and dates on the other side of a sheet of paper. And God has predicted. He doesn't need to predict because he knows. So, you know, one of the things God can't do is he can't learn because he already knows everything. He knows all this was going to happen. And then you ask the question, why did he have Daniel write it all down? God knew it. Daniel was old and going to die. What does it matter? Well, what it matters is Jews could look at these scriptures, they could see what's coming, and they could know that God knows what's going on. See, they, they would understand when they study these prophecies, which, by the way, most Jews didn't, but they would, those that did would understand that not only that God knows what's going on, but God's in control. And they, they could trust these prophecies. And, and that's the point. You know, as, as tedious as this study is, the important point is that every detail of history, of this history, was mapped out in advance to the Jews so that they would understand that God is the God of the Jews and he knows the future and they can trust him. That's the same message for us. We know that we can trust the scriptures because prophecy comes to pass. And if you don't mind me continuing to beat a dead horse, that when these prophecies, which were prophesied in five, what did I say, 538 BC? I've lost the date now, but it's five something BC. When they came to pass two, three, 400 years later, they all came to pass literally, just exactly as the angel had said. It wasn't some figurative use, it was literal. And that, that to me is significant because if Old Testament prophecies have come true literally, then I believe New Testament prophecies will come true literally as well. Father, thank you for this time and for their patience. I know this is a painful time, a painful message to get through all this history, to get through something that seems more important. But I thank you, Lord, that uh, you included these scriptures for us that we might learn that we can, in fact, trust you. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.